I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, one UC Berkeley psychologist has spent years studying the human capacity to feel awe. People around the world, when they feel awe in nature, in listening to music, or encountering people's strength and courage and overcoming obstacles, um, their sense of self diminishes. And as it turns out, this feeling of wonderment and connection is woven into indigenous communities across the globe. That sense of reverence, that sense of, oh, we are part of something so vast, that is also responsive to us, just as we are to them. Like, there is this intersubjective relationship. It's not only me within a space, but the whole of space is also embracing me back. The science, purpose, and surprising health benefits of awe, all ahead on Life Examined. It's hard to know exactly how to talk about a human experience or emotion that is, in some sense, beyond words entirely. But the word awe has a long history, whether it's in religion or philosophy. For centuries, it was a feeling of reverence for something that's beyond our understanding of the world. Irish philosopher Edmund Burke and naturalist Charles Darwin secularized the feeling of awe, saying the emotion can be experienced from music or art or even the great outdoors. And I'm sure many of you listening now could think of moments in your own life where this feeling of wonderment swept over you. Maybe it was a vivid sunset or eating certain foods or experiences traveling. But is there a reason we feel awe? And does awe and wonderment serve a purpose? Professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, Dacher Keltner, says awe was central to human evolution, and it provided us with the ability to forge strong social systems and connect with one another, not to mention its surprising health benefits. Professor Keltner is the faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center and co-author of Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life, and also The Compassion Instinct. Professor Keltner, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to be with you, Jonathan. Let's jump into this this really wonderful subject. Um, You've spent a lot of time researching awe, thinking about what it is, the role it plays in our lives and in our our culture. But let's talk about how how we define the term awe. How do you understand it and how could you communicate it to us? Yeah, you know, um, science and scholarship more generally always begins with definitions. And this one is hard to define, right? And some people... You know, like William James, founding figure in American psychology, feel that awe is almost ineffable or undefinable. But we, um, Jonathan Hyde and I, define awe as the feeling of being in the presence of vast things that you don't understand. And so a simple way to define it is that is when we encounter vast mysteries in life. Yeah, I appreciate the ability to find words for something that is ineffable. Um, and I wonder what drew you and Jonathan Haidt a little bit further into this subject? Yeah, you know, part of the reason to, you know, to be quite honest is, um, is my background. Uh, mm. I was raised uh, by a literature professor, my mom, who taught romanticism and Virginia Woolf and all the awe of literature. And my dad is an artist and uh, painted and got me interested in, you know, Velasquez and Goya and the Dutch master. So I was raised in, I, you know, now that I look upon it, um, in, in a life of awe, in a period mm-hmm. where kids were allowed to get outside and wander and so forth. And then the other reason, of course, is, you know, my scholarship in science, which is, um, it is literally, un, it was untouched scientifically hmm. for the most part in only 15 or 20 years ago, we would study things like joy and fear. But we didn't study this emotion that Einstein really felt was the cradle of civilization that gives us art and literature and poetry and science. And, and so we, we use the tools of science to dig in and figure out what this emotion does for us. Yeah, there's these incredible references to this emotion, just like you mentioned there with Einstein and, and many yeah. others. And I wonder if we if we move back in time now and we think yeah. about some of the earliest writings or my sense is it goes even beyond that but but where where do we begin to 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 kind of glimpse awe in our understandings of it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I wish I was capable of answering that right. question Jonathan right. but but you know here's a I I mean it Awe is the beginning of culture in many mm. ways, right? It's where humans say, 
let's get together and think about what's mysterious, what is threatening to us. Um, and so you, when you look at important veins of culture, you see odd its beginning. So, for example, you asked about literature. There are all kinds of traditions of writing about awe, like the spiritual journaling of Julian of Norwich. The Bhagavad Gita, uh, one of the great Hindu texts, is really, you know, a couple thousand years old, a story of awe. So you see it, um, you see it in those uh, sources. You see it in art, right? That artists uh, early on were trying to capture, um, you know, from the very beginnings. You could even think of the engravings on rocks yes. of indigenous peoples mm -hmm. of like, what is the afterlife like or what is this what are the vast beasts that roam the plains how do we d draw them and represent them and i would go even further back in time you know uh jane goodall one of my heroes observed chimpanzees doing this thing called the waterfall dance where when chimps um that she observed hear thunder or large winds or waterfalls they kind of act reverentially around it. They pile erect, they fluff up their fur, which is our goose tingles. They look at it, they look at the water, uh, they move things around, they dance mm. as a way to say this vast mystery, I can relate to it. So I think it's right at the beginning of so much of human culture. Mm. That's that's a beautiful story. And it makes me think of, and you alluded to it, to it for a second, but just some of the earliest cave paintings that we've seen, right? Yeah. And these kind of these inexplicable figures, and I don't know that there, there's so much there. There's so much mystery that we could just find. I think going back any at any point in time, I guess. Yeah, and you know, there's increasing attention right now to the indigenous traditions mm -hmm. of uh, Mesoamerica, Mayan, Aztec, Toltec, and the Tolmec, and the like. And and you know, when you look at those cultures. They're, they're so awe-centered, right? There are patterns in, in weaving, the huichol paint, string paintings. So yeah, it's, I, I think that culture in some sense, and I've written about how it archives awe through music and dance. Dance is a way to mm -hmm. represent awe. Visual painting, literature, poetry is a way to say like, this is what we as a people, this little culture we are, we, we grapple with the things that are mysterious to us, like life and death and and vast forces in nature and supernatural forces. So it's right at the heart of culture. Yeah. In, in the Western worlds, you've uh, pointed some attention to the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke. And, <laughs> Thanks um... for noting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Burke, Burke was a wonderful mind and, yeah. and, and had an interesting way of thinking about this. I, I wonder if you, could, if you could tell us a little bit about him and how he fits into this conversation. Oh, my goodness. You know, Jonathan, thanks for the careful reading. You know, uh, you know for in the written record awe largely becomes a religious emotion, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's a lot of mystical accounts that interested William James and Walter Stace and others of, you know, Julian of Norwich and St. Paul and mm -hmm. Arjun and the Bhagavad Gita and the Buddha and so forth. And, and it is this religious emotion. And there is a deep sort of association between feelings of mystical awe and our sense of the supernatural or divine. Uh, and then in the age of enlightenment, in the, you know, the mid 18th century, along comes Edmund Burke, who's kind of this odd character. You know, he, he was from Ireland and hung out with the literary elite in London, probably felt like an outsider. Uh, um, he was conservative in many ways. Um, you know, he was against the French Revolution and, and uh, uprisings like that. Um, and, he, and there was this big question about how do you differentiate what's beautiful, like if you look at a nice pastoral scene in a painting, from what's awe-inspiring. Uh, and he come, comes along and, and makes that distinction and says, awe is about power and obscurity or mystery and, and dread somewhat and fear, a little bit of fear. And beauty is really about affection hmm. um, and comfort. And I think he got that right. And I have a forthcoming book on awe that reviews the scientific distinctions between the beautiful and the sublime. But what's more radical, and I think this is why you're bringing him up, Jonathan, is he secularizes off, right, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> he says, you can feel it towards thunder and patterns of light and dark on the, you know, in the play of shadows. 
in looking at a bull, you know, an animal. <laughs> and yeah. so he, I mean, what a radical act. And it's, it's in probably the most important book on awe that's been written. That's so interesting. And, and, yeah. and I'm, as you were talking earlier, I kept thinking, yeah, this is, I, I wonder if a lot of this is following, is falling into this conversation about religion, but, yeah. but, but you're right to open this up out, outside of the religious sphere. I think for a lot of people, this becomes a lot more relatable and more approachable too, right? It does. And, and, and he, he opens up as do the romantics of Goethe mm -hmm. and von Humboldt and others. He, you know, that period of the 18th century, as you know, told people it, you can feel awe outside of temples. You can feel awe in mountains like the, the great Al the Alps traditions, right, in the 18th century. You can feel awe about music. You can feel awe about how wonderful human, how courageous people are. And in fact, one, we've now surveyed people in 30 different countries and other people's moral courage and kindness is the dominant source of awe in our daily living. So Burke said, this isn't just a religious emotion. This is, I, I think it's one of the most important insights that it's just all around us, mm -hmm. right? It's, and, and now we, the task is to train our minds and our bodies to appreciate that. Yeah. One aspect of awe that I know has come up a little bit between yeah. you um, and Jonathan Haidt is, is thinking about how in, in these in these experiences the self can feel smaller yeah and and we can feel connected to something larger which i think is is something really um foundational about about this experience could you could you talk a little bit more about that yeah you know the if you just ask people after they felt awe, like what was it like they're like God. and you know an interesting example is the ego death of mm. psychedelics and psychedelics certain psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin are very much about awe. Uh, Peter Hendricks is arguing, but people often, after an awe experience, like they they see Yosemite or they see out just unbelievable courage in the Olympics or whatever it is. They're like, God, I just felt like I disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite examples is, of this is the very influential uh, theologian Julian of Norwich, who wrote about her awe felt for Jesus's love. And she said the phrase, I am nothing, uh, throughout her writings. Emerson, you know, famously said that all mean egotism vanishes. And so what our lab has done is capture that scientifically. And, you know, people around the world, when they feel awe in nature or in listening to music or encountering people's strength and courage and overcoming obstacles, you know, um, they their sense of self diminishes. They don't feel as worried about their daily stresses. They aren't as focused on their material gain. Very impressively, a region of the brain called the default mode network, which is the e it looks at the world through the lens of the ego, it deactivates during awe. Mm -hmm. So that opens us up, like you said, to connect to big things like my sense of community, my sense of culture, ecosystems, right? Uh, that I think were the, that was, I believe, the central cognitive development in human evolution was the ability to integrate the self into systems out in the world. Yes, say more about that, because this, this would mean that awe serves a kind of um, a practical function in terms of society, or, or how we relate, or um, how we are with others. Can, can you say more about this? Profoundly so, you know, uh, so point one if you want to survive in the context of our evolution or today, um, you got to fold into community. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, but life expectancy is boosted by 10 years. If you have strong social networks, social networks are systems, right? They're like complex social systems of people connected to each other. Yeah. Awe helps you figure out like, Oh, I'm, I'm this part of this wonderful system. Second point, you know, and this is, very deep in indigenous traditions around the world, and there are many, is the sense of being part of an ecosystem, right? That's an old intuition that Charles Darwin felt in his, his, his writings, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote about, that I'm part of nature, right? I am one species among many, using resources, you know, etc. And awe gives you that insight too. So 
I that's why I really feel, um, you know, Rachel Carson, the great environmentalist, sure. has has this amazing essay about um, teaching children to wonder and to feel awe. And I think it's urgently needed today to remember we're part of community and part of these ecosystems. Is one aspect of, of this kind of communal argument, though, that we have to we have to have um, buy-in or have a certain set of shared beliefs or believe in the beauty of the community or the structure yeah. of it? How, how does all kind of work in, in that way, would you say? Yeah, you know, that's, and, and it's really one of these interesting challenges of our, you know, our digital era, our fractionated era. We don't have a single religion uniting people, right. or a single, you know, political polarization and the like. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the general... Uh, finding is awe makes you have a deeper sense of your local culture hmm. that you're part of it right now that doesn't guarantee social <laughs> uh, calm or good news right, right? right. I, can, I can feel very connected to Antifa <laughs> I'm not part of Antifa but sure. hypothetically and suddenly when I encounter someone who's different from me I get it I'm more adversarial so that's one of the edges and rubs of Oz. It can promote, it could promote potentially ill will between local cultures. One, one to me obvious application of this is dealing with climate change. And I yeah. know one, yeah. one of the, the, the tools for climate educators is say, can we, can we take mm. some young folks out and let's say go to Yosemite Valley together and stare at those rock faces and those waterfalls and all sit there in the presence of that majesty and say, is this not worth preserving? Is this mm -hmm. not worth us coming together and fighting for, right? I mean, to me, that seems right uh, along the lines of something you're talking about, awe in terms of a, a togetherness and potentially a social cause. You know, I, I, I have to confess, you just gave me the chills mm. <laughs> with your, no, I mean, you know, <laughs> climate, we all know this, it's getting prosaic to say, but climate crises are, are paramount and um, the there's this rich literature and it's actually more developed in South Korea and Japan of like how nature heals us mm. how it's a form of health care uh, how it helps us bring about our best reasoning and they're really cool studies of that how it, it's really this source of, of our best tendencies of robust physical health robust thinking robust social connections so maybe we need to protect nature for selfish reasons sure. in some sense. And there is really neat work now um, showing, as you are suggesting, not only does immersion in nature uh, lead to more pro-environment behaviors, so too does um, watching beautiful films about nature. And this was a nice study in China showing, you know, that if you have people feel awe in different ways, They'll consume less. They'll have a smaller carbon footprint in their actions. So it all may be this important solution to that very critical crisis. Yeah. Darwin was kind of yeah. interested in this question, I think, in, in some way. And he, he might give us an interesting way to think about this in terms of evolution. What could you tell us about him in this conversation? Oh, man. You know... I, one, I, I'm just finishing up a book um, on awe, which will be out in the spring. And, and one of the things that I decided to do was to get a little outside of the lab and to talk to people and to read people's personal accounts of where they got their ideas, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Newton and Descartes were blown away by rainbows. Uh, how in the world would water, you know, light bending through water produce a rainbow? And they did great math to figure that out. And, and Darwin actually his theory of evolution comes to him in some sense on the voyage on the beagle and he's sitting by this river he awakes awakens from a dream and he looks at what he calls a tangled bank and he sees all these species collaborating and cooperating and vying for life right and it's in his on the origin of species it's one of the last paragraphs where he's like wow i have this awe experience and it it, it reveals the processes of evolution. Uh, and so in some sense, awe brings him to um, his, his thinking about evolution, that there mm -hmm. are these complex systems that we're part of, 
that were and different species have their adaptations and are vying for life uh, in uh, in the struggle that is evolution. And now, um, 150 years later, um, you know, people like David Sloan Wilson are saying we evolved to be collective. That's our signature strength is to fold into communities and awe through ritual and music and dance and art and religion strengthens our collective. So I think there's 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 so many points of contact with awe being a central force in in our evolution and, and in thinking about evolution. I think you also just you just really crystallized how a community can form around awe, for example, when we go out and listen to, I don't know, I mean, classically like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something, or, or, or be immersing ourselves together in those great works of art as a common culture. I mean, that, that creates the communal sense of awe, just as you were talking about. Yeah, you know, and that's, I wish I had the wherewithal to study that, Jonathan. It's mm. such a, but as I did this research on awe, you start to find like, there are all these communities that, like you say, are really defined by awe. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorites is there's this whole cloud society in England where thousands of people, like most of us, are awestruck by clouds. And, and there's this scholar who kind of has a website and you share your pictures of clouds, you write about them, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, music has that quality of like yeah. the music, you know, um, who you love speaks to this core sense of wonder in your, in your being and you will feel like you're tribal with the people who share that musical preference. Sure. I want to bring in some of the science here because I know yeah. this has been really important in your work and mm. and can you talk about physiologically what happens when we experience awe because there are impacts on the body. Talk a little bit about that. They're profound, you know, and and it's interesting because the study of emotion related physiology uh, was really kind of narrowly focused on fight or flight physiology, Mm -hmm. right? The amygdala and cortisol and, you know, elevated blood pressure and the like. And and it didn't have a lot to say about awe. And and I think that there are a few really striking discoveries. One is the reduction of the default mode network, which I've talked about, which is parts of your cortex that are about the ego. A second is the chills and mm. you know people you know darwin got the chills listening to music wow. and he's like what what why is why are the chills this tingly sensation up my spine related to musical beauty um the chills are very prominent in accounts of mystical experience right, right? uh the uh kundalini in the yogic tradition is is kind of this pattern of chills in your body so really careful work by Todd Thrash and others, and we're working on this, separates the chills into two kinds. One is the, the shudder of dread and horror, right? When you see the pile of dead bodies in a Nazi, Nazi concentration camp, you shudder, right? You're like, wow, look what, you're horrified by what humans do. And then that's different than the chills up your spine and, to your top of your head, which young people call ASMR. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those really track a feeling of, of being part of a community. So that's important. Um, the awe activates the vagus nerve. We, we've got a paper on that. And the vagus nerve is the largest bundle of nerves in your body. It goes from your spinal cord down to your gut. Helps you calm down and connect and be part of community. And awe activates that. Um, there's really cool work by Alan Fisk and others uh, on tears, that certain kinds of tears, when you, so, so for example, when you watch somebody overcome obstacles, you're like, God, I'm tearing up. Or you see uh, a group of dance, you know, your, your child is in a dance performance and they all finish their dance performance in fifth grade and you tear up. Those tears mark a sense of, of what defines your community. So there's this wonderful pattern of bodily responses that are part of awe. Uh, and I love Walt Whitman on this because he, um, you know, he was a great champion of awe. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he said, you know, quite radically for the 19th century, the soul is in your body. And, and you know, yeah, there are sins of the flesh and so forth, but there's also lofty stuff in your body. And I think these tears and chills and vagal response are part of this, this soul in the body. Mm. 
So, so to you, does this research take us to the place of, of saying, we need more of this stuff. We need more of these experiences. And maybe they don't have to be really massive, big, big ones, but lots of small ones too. I know this is something you look at as well. Uh, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, um, we're, you know, coming out of COVID, uh, certain parts of our culture are in a mental health crisis, mm -hmm. particularly young people. You know, I've been I've been teaching young people for 30 years and there's been a real change. And, and uh, I feel that awe has been taken out of their lives. You know, that mm -hmm. they, they don't get to wander. They don't aren't digging their hands in dirt as much. Too much is scheduled, etc. It's, it's it's kind of obvious to say that now, but it's really true. Um, and that begs the question of how awe, how can awe help us in this regard, right? And we've done a variety of studies, you know, with really interesting samples of people. You get veterans outdoors for awe, and they show a 30% drop in PTSD. Right. You get kids who go to high schools that don't have gardens, uh, or they don't have a, a real opportunity for awe or nature, you take them outdoors for a day, and, and they have a dramatic increase in happiness. We did a recent paper where we had people over the age of 75 who are starting to think about the end of life and getting a bit more anxious. They go on a regular awe walk once a week compared to a really nice control condition, a vigorous walk, and those elderly people feel better about life, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's, I, this is, uh, it doesn't hurt the environment. It's cheap, it's non-pharmaceutical, it's non-ideological in some ways, uh, and it's right there to help us. And like you said, Jonathan, um, one of the most important findings from our research is uh, it really caught me off guard, which is people feel awe two to three times a week. Um, it's around us. And so this research says we really need to allow ourselves to go find it right. uh, maybe once a day. And there is this sense that kids seem to be able to access this a little bit faster than uh, older people, right? Or or yeah. there's, there's a childlike wonderment that I think we sometimes talk about wistfully as, as mm. we age. Why can't we get back to that place where just, you know, dipping our toes in the ocean would make us mm. feel alive? I, have, have you looked at that or kind of explored why, why that does seem to be the case? You know, I, I mean, one of the interesting things about when you start studying something that hasn't been studied that much, like awe, is there are these huge holes in the scientific literature, mm -hmm. and there are very few studies of kids in awe, which is astonishing. Uh, the studies find little doses of awe for young kids make them less selfish, they're more kind, uh, and so good reason. Dante Dixon, one of my collaborators, has found high school kids who feel more awe are more curious in their education, which is good news. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a, an argument very obviously that, you know, and parents out there have felt this, like, you know, mm -hmm. you're tired, you're not sleeping, you're out of shape <laughs> mm -hmm. and your kid is like, why this and why the stars and why the universe and <laughs> why this twig and why is that frog? And you're like, sure. ah, you yeah. know, um, they, and, and there's an argument in the developmental literature that we have these big bursts of periods of awe to learn about our culture, to learn about the environment. And I think that will be one of the very important next uh, lines of inquiry in this science. Hmm. Well, I wonder personally for you, have there been ever any awe experiences in your life that have kind of, I don't know, shaken you or, or, or they could be small experience. I, I just wonder how some of this kind of circles back to you and hmm. some of your life. Hmm. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, Jonathan, I, I was lucky in many ways. My parents, yeah, a very unusual background, um, you know, got me interested in the, the classic stuff of awe. But the, the experience that really transformed me um, was a very hard experience of awe, but a universal one, which was mm. I lost my younger brother. Um, who he and I did everything together from Little League to wandering rivers to 
you know, um, just being who we were in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. And he, he passed away because of colon cancer two and a half years ago. Mm. And I was Im immersed in this science of awe. And I was watching his life end was just was horrifying. Colon cancer is horrifying. But the end of life provokes awe, right? Mm. Uh, and then grief has a certain amount of awe in it where you're like, what is life? What what happens when people pass away? How do I think about mm -hmm. that? It's one of the oldest questions. And so what was striking to me is as painful and horrifying as that whole experience was, it was really the the awe and the wonder trying to think about our human condition and why loved ones leave us mm. led me to all this inquiry, right? And to get back to my sense of what I'm integrated in to in terms of culture and this world. And, and so it, and, and in our work, a lot of people will write about watching a loved one pass away as a defining experience of awe. And that's how, what the mind does is it, it takes these vast mysteries and tries to make meaning out of them. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. And I, Thank I'm you. glad you could share that story with us. I think a lot of our listeners hmm. will, will be able to understand what you've gone through. And, and it's, it, to me, it's so fascinating thinking about awe in terms of how it relates to life and death, but how maybe yeah. how some of these kind of <laughs> more mystical experiences, I mean, we hear this um, through, uh, through hallucinogens or through other yeah. experiences, they actually make us more comfortable with the process of dying ourselves. And I, I'm sure that comes through in the literature. When, when the self becomes smaller, we become more, I think, at ease with the idea of being integrated into something larger than us when we pass. I, I wonder if that was present with you as well. It, you know, and, you know, that's one of the most important findings in this new science of psychedelics is it helps you the awe of that experience. It, it helps you understand that this is part of life, mm. right, is we have a life cycle. Mm. Um, and for me, the following the awe of that experience, like, why did I feel that? How do I still I, I went hiking in the mountains after my brother's passing, because mm -hmm. that's what we used to do. I felt him everywhere. You know, I felt him in the trees and in the wind and the redwoods and so forth. Mm. And he still, I still feel him around. So what is that, right? And and so um, the I find and and I did come out of it, Jonathan. Like a lot of people, I like, oh my god, I can't believe I have to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that those experiences of awe and the inquiries they led to, I feel much more peaceful about that prospect. I've been discussing the science, the history, the purpose, and the meaning of awe with psychologist Dacher Keltner. Dacher, I've really appreciated this conversation today. Thank you so much. So much. Well, thank you for your <laughs> equally deep questions. I really appreciate your taking this emotion uh, with all the seriousness that it, it needs today. So thanks, Jonathan. Once again, that was Dacher Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and the faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. Still to come, the intrinsic sense of awe within indigenous peoples. Cultural psychologist Dr. Yuria Selidwin joins us after the break. You're listening to Life Examined right here on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Dacher Keltner explain the science of awe and how a daily dose of it might be good for your mental and spiritual health. So do all communities experience this feeling in the same way? Are there some cultures with a deeper connection with nature and by extension with awe and wonderment? Dr. Yudia Selidwin is a cultural psychologist. She's also a native of indigenous descent from Chiapas, Mexico. Dr. Salidwan describes the stories and songs that enthralled her childhood, and she says that awe and reverence go back to the place of belonging, which is land and community. Yudia Salidwan, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, thank you for having me, dear Jonathan. It's 
I, I, I'm so curious uh, about where you're from, this area of Chiapas, Mexico, and, and this, this really beautiful relationship that you developed with your grandmother, which I know would inform so much of your work. Can you take us back to where you're from and talk a little bit about this relationship? I'd love to hear more about this. So that gives me the opportunity, dear Jonathan, to start by um, honoring, really, you know, honoring mm. the, the lands that, that I'm from um, in the highlands of Chiapas, uh, Mexico. The second valley of Ocosingo is where I was from in a, in a place called Coela, you know, that we, the family also called uh, El Paraíso, you know, the paradise. And uh, I love uh, to think that uh, my lineage of the Nahua and Maya peoples in, in Mesoamerica are, have their roots in paradise, right? Mm. Without, without, of course, uh, giving the, the Abrahamic tradition uh, connotation, but rather just the, the idea of a place that's full of life, you know, a place that's, that's vibrant, that's welcoming, that's, um, that where you feel seen and held and touched and care in a way that you can expand yourself to really embrace the whole world around you as well. Yeah. And I, I, I and in that way, I, I honor as well my my ancestors, the, my grandmother, as you mentioned, such a beautiful, beautiful being of of the earth and being of light. A medicine woman in in that area uh, and I have a, a lineage of uh, my grandma and great-grandma and great-great-grandpa and, and all that uh, until the very roots of the earth that were medicine people uh, medicine beings uh, and so with that I feel that also so related to the very spirit of the earth the very heart of the earth um, and the realization that everything around is very alive and responsive to us. You know? mm -hmm. So the, there's this reverence to, to the natural world. Uh, and in, as you know, in many indigenous traditions, uh, we relate to our lands as, as a nourishing mother. You know? mm -hmm. you know, the, the idea of Mother Earth is very common in, in indigenous traditions. Uh, so this this relationship with the land uh, is extremely important for not only for me but for indigenous peoples generally in the world, and and that is also uh, gives me the opportunity to recognize that the struggle for land right now. You know, nowadays we hear here and there land acknowledgments and etc. But most of the time, it stays only in the word. Uh, and we need to really invite institutions and all people around to realize um, the real ways that we can have to reciprocate and give back to the original communities of these lands. You know, because yeah. people yeah. of indigenous uh, groups have been displaced for centuries from their original lands and now of course when we see the struggles of the climate crisis it just continues so i really want to invite people to reflect on the land acknowledgement is is not only um the word but it, it is also the action you know like really pushing institutions uh, to join this continuous struggle for finding a home mm -hmm. for going back home you know? Um, and, and find the, a path to recovery, the original traditions, languages, the lands and sacred places. Um, so we right. can return to that sense of reverence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th thank you for, for, for kind of inviting us into some of those ideas. And I wonder if you could now expand a little bit on this concept of awe. We spoke with Dr. Keltner about this. It's a question that you're very fascinated by, especially in, in how this shows up in indigenous communities. Perhaps it's the one you grew up in, but I know your interests take you to many other communities as well. How do we understand awe in the context of these very ancient hmm. cultures? Well, 
uh, first I also, uh, because we talk about indigenous traditions, to also be very clear that there are um, there are similarities, but remember that there's that variety. Of course. Um, but oh, wow! <laughs> Even just the idea of uh, reverence, you know, and and I go back to that that uh, that place of belonging, you know, to land and and uh, community, and in. I know that the the work that Dacker has been doing on all defines it as the 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 moment where we are in the presence of something so vast that we can't understand, mm. but suddenly we feel uh, part of. And with the indigenous uh, perspective, the awareness of realization of uh, of the world starts with community. No, starts with the land. That sense of reverence, that sense of, oh, we are part of something so vast, that is also responsive to us, you know, just as we are to, to them. Like There is this intersubjective relationship. You know, it's not only me within a space, but the whole of space is also embracing me back. Mm. So there's this this sense of deep care and gentleness and kindness with which we relate to the whole earth because we know that our life um, has been granted from these different beings. So we we ask that uh, permission you know, of of relating to the world in such a divine way. The earth, in such selfless, kind and nourishing way, um, gives us all these possibilities of thriving, of creating, of uh, exploring, discovering the whole idea of, of reality. And we do that also through intergenerational wisdom transmission. So that's where our grandparents and grandfathers and elders, caretakers, are so important within these traditions because they are the, the ones that keep the tradition together, you know, that keep the, the wisdom alive. And we do that usually with stories, you know, with narratives. And these narratives can be either spoken, you know, like with stories, or they can also be um, embodied, like with rituals. You know, we, we do dancing, with music, with um, this collective effervescence you know, that also makes us so aware, like in our body, we sense every cell of the body vibrating because we are part of a group, mm. you know, a group that's moving together, that's acting together, um, life, you know, this, this idea of, uh, of the power of motivation of, of life. Yeah. And then that also brings the, the ceremonial aspect that's uh, the one that keeps the the code of behavior, you know, the social uh, fabric together, you know, of all the traditions and ideas. So, so it's, it's really so vast. Yes. And, yeah. and the beauty of it also is that the self-transcendent aspect, you know, the, the idea of ecstasy, um, and ecstasy as out of the self, you know, out of this narrow-minded um, ego consciousness that keeps it only like me and what I need and what I want, but rather into the world, you know, we transcend that space to really merge, to really become part of this large, vast fabric, you know, we weave ourselves, we weave our experience with the world, with those, with that vibrancy, you know, and with that reverence. Yeah. And I want to go back to the idea of kindness, you know, the kind relating with others, you know, knowing how my experience is impacting the world, and the world is also responding to me that way, you know. So this constant uh, relationality with everything that exists. Mm. That's a, a very beautiful description of, of awe and the multifaceted nature of it. And, and I wonder, you know, for you, 
when you are part of these rituals or these ancient ceremonies, what's it like for you? What's it like in your body? What does it feel like to uh, have that level of connection to, to, to this idea of wonderment and to the past? Do you have any kind of recollections or memories or thoughts you could share with us? So, um, yes, I am feeling it right now. Mm. <laughs> As, as I listen yeah. to to the to the warmth of your voice I, I can I can sense this coming together uh, through these wonderful technological tools to mm. also reach the warmth of the heart of your audience mm. and then we are it's as if we are coming together in this virtual circle of community you know bringing these ideas but these ideas are not only in the mind these ideas are coming from the heart mm -hmm. and they are coming also from your and my heart and Dakar's here, but also from our ancestors. It's the past that they are coming to this present and then we are bringing this into the heart of others to create a future together, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this merging of a non-linear, ever-expanding uh, possibility of union you know, in in, um, in religious studies uh, we call it like a panenhenic experience it's an experience when you feel so united with existence uh, that that feels through every cell of the of the body you know mm -hmm. we we come to the realization that the boundaries that we perceive of the material body are just the perhaps grosser manifestation of a much more subtle spiritual vibrancy that comes within us all you know, that that unites us all that's um keeping us all moving and hopefully moving together reorienting us toward uh, a more creative more meaningful uh life you know a life yeah. that has more purpose uh, mm -hmm. for for the well-being of all yeah and uh, and so in that sense, when you ask, do you, do you have any memories? Like that also, I, I I lose that sense of time in the sense that the past, mo the early experiences of contemplative uh, practice that I had were with my grandmother, and of course we didn't call it that, but uh, but I I I, I sensed that you know, we we would be in the world and enter in communion with nature. I loved how she she would be so emphatic about how to listen to to the song of the river or the song of the wind mm. or the gossip of the birds at dawn you know, when you, they start mm -hmm. just coming into like what happened in the day or like what plans are, are they coming. Um, so this sudden realization that you are embraced because also you're being embraced so there's with that comes that responsibility as well you know, of how how are we going to care for this responsive world that we inhabit mm -hmm. uh, we realize that it is a, a responsibility to engage with the world so not just be here to take or to extract or to be fed but what are we offering the world what are we intending to bring how can we recreate this new story of of um, of the world by being together you know by what kind of virtues are we bringing into our interactions with every day yeah. here with you with the audience with the way we relate to our food, to our natural world, other mm -hmm. living beings. Well, Yuria, we, we only have a few minutes left, but, but I wonder for you, um, what's the importance of maintaining a sense of awe in our lives? Why, why do we need it moving forward as we grow, as we get older? Do you have any kind of final thoughts on that that you could share with us? Oh, Jonathan, I, yeah, this thing about time, you know, like when we enter in a, a self-transcended awe 
uh, space, then even time disappears, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so it's like suddenly, what? We only have a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel that that's exactly where we need to be. You know, when when we enter these spaces of reverence and of of awe, uh, we are right here in the present, mm -hmm. really connected to what we're doing. You know, really um, intentionally being being not only doing not only thinking but being fully you know with a heart like with the emotion with the mind with the body connected to a larger spirit that brings us to that sense of like ah we are truly part of life of a sensitive gentle kind compassionate life and for all that beauty that it shares and with all the challenges that it shares because you know, we also need to remember that there's this balance between the struggle and the and the growth that we have a place we belong to this space to this vast space and right here we have the possibility to change together, reorienting together to something that's more meaningful, more creative, more gentle space of life. Well, Yudia, Salidwan, thank you so much for, for sharing this space with us in this time. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to, to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for creating this these spaces of all and these spaces of, of connection. Yeah, may we continue expanding this. Once again, that was Dr. Yudia Salidwan, cultural psychologist and native of Chiapas, Mexico. Well, that's all for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. And a quick note from us, as Life Examine heads into our second year on KCRW, we have a goal of growing the show and reaching new listeners. So if you find yourself enjoying the program, we'd love for you to help us with a few easy things. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episode with two of your friends. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week.